0: Our first scripture reading is from John chapter 10, verses 22 to 31. John 10. John 10, from verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jews took up stones again to stone him. And uh, no doubt uh, they took up the stones because they recognised a claim of divinity when they heard one. And they didn't want to hear that. Uh, Would you turn also please to Isaiah 46. I'll read verses 1 to 7. The text is verses 3 and 4, and after that I'll read from the Westminster chapter 17. Isaiah 46, verses 1 to 7. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over, their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle... The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they are bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Now, our text, verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth. And have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I shall be the same. And even to your graying years I shall bear you. I have done it, and I shall carry you. And I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. To whom would you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress." And then from the Westminster Chapter 17, now in your bulletin you should find a copy of uh, Article 1, but uh, I made a last minute uh, decision to include in this Article 2, which uh, deals with similar matters. So I will read Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 17, Articles 1 and 2, but if you don't have a copy of the second article before it, um, uh, at least you will hear it read. This uh, chapter 17 is on the perseverance of the saints. Article 1. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And then Article 2. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you use your word today to strengthen us again, to strengthen us against the attacks of the devil, the temptations that come from him and well up from within us through our old nature as well. We pray that you would strengthen us against temptations of the mind to uh, think and reason wrongly about ourselves or the world around us or about you. We pray also that you would guard us against uh, sinful feelings and desires that come within us too. And we pray that you would use your word, For that strengthening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant, people of God, as I mentioned, chapter 17 here, it's a chapter that deals with the perseverance of the saints, the um, pea of tulip, as many of you would know. And perseverance of the saints is the doctrine that the saints, that is those who are chosen by God to be holy and who are made holy and accepted as such in the Lord Jesus Christ, born again by his spirit, that saints are kept in the faith by God's power so that they persevere until the end rather than completely falling away. They may backslide for a time. It may be a temporary falling back. But in the end... God will bring them through so that they enjoy eternal life and the key idea in this is the fact that Christians persevere because God preserves them and uh, this is uh, why you sometimes hear talk about either the perseverance of the saints, that's what we do or the preservation of the saints that's what God does this is a doctrine that has been rejected by many who are opposed to the Reformed faith down through the ages. Uh, Romanism, for example, which has no assurance of salvation historically in its teaching, no assurance of salvation for the believer, it has a probable conjecture. You can uh, make an assumption perhaps or a hopeful wish that you will be saved, but because the system depends on your own works, you can never be 100% sure. Because maybe you'll mess it up tomorrow. Uh, so, because there's no assurance of salvation, no guarantee of that for the for the believer uh, in Romanism, uh, as a result of that, there is also no clear doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You can't have the saints, a guarantee of saints persevering to the end, if there is uncertainty about what the end is anyway. And similarly, Arminianism, although Arminianism is a little bit more ambiguous perhaps or ambivalent about this doctrine of perseverance depends on who you talk to you get variations on it but anything influenced that much by free will thinking has this problem that if it's up to my free will when I become a Christian then surely it must be up to my free will if I want to unbecome a Christian in which case I can't be sure what I'm going to do tomorrow if it depends that much on me so maybe tomorrow though I'm a saint today maybe tomorrow I will stop being one And so again, you have that compromise of this teaching. And from whichever side the attacks on the doctrine come, as I mentioned this morning, uh, one of the main arguments against it that's used against this teaching is the idea that it appears to be contrary to experience or to observation, that perhaps we all know people who have been members of the church in the past, and they seem to be genuine Christians, but now... Uh, they have left God's ways. They have turned away from the faith, and some appear to have died in their apostasy. So, how can you answer an argument like that? How can you answer an argument from observation or experience? It Can be very difficult. Difficult arguing with such people uh, because many people put experience above the Word of God. They put their own experience and their own interpretation of that experience. Uh, above the word of God so they essentially say to themselves I don't care what you point to me in God's word I know what I've seen I know what I feel I know what I've experienced so how do you answer that? two ways first of all you answer it by the promise of preservation and secondly you answer it by the doctrines that lie behind that promise those are the two points this afternoon the promise of preservation and the doctrines behind it in the first place then, as I say, there's really only one way to counter what fallible men think they see and experience, and that is by the clear teaching of Scripture. We may think that we observe something that's incontrovertible. Uh, someone may think, it's, it's so obvious to me, and you can't argue against it. I knew someone who was such a fine Christian, and now they're not, and then they died in, their, in that apostasy, so... Uh, you can't convince me no matter what you may say we think we've got the right interpretation we think we're looking at the facts but every time a Christian looks at facts and and things that go on in this world we always have to interpret them and we always do so according to our presuppositions and our colouring of the facts as we look at the things going on around us is never infallible It is always prone to error and to mistakes, mistakes of interpretation. Scripture also needs to be interpreted by us, and we may make mistakes with that too from time to time, but in the case of reading the Scripture, we have divine aid. We have the work of the Holy Spirit promised in the reading of Scripture for God's people, and we also have the Scripture itself, which enables us to interpret Scripture. Scripture interpreting Scripture are two big helps so that we get the interpretation of Scripture right. So what does the Scripture say on this matter concerning the preservation of the saints? Well, one of the things it says, as we saw this morning, is that those who go out from us were never really of us. 1 John 2 verse 19. And this verse alone shows that the observation of that members leave the church does not in any way undermine the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints they never were truly saints in the first place not in the full sense of the word so you cannot use their departure to prove that saints don't persevere but on top of that on top of that argument we have uh, very specific promises and many of them uh, one of the most helpful things, if you ever want to look this up and, uh, or buy yourself a little copy of it, there's a little book by uh, two men by the name of Steele and Thomas. Steele with an E on the end, and Thomas. And they wrote a little book on uh, the five points of Calvinism. And uh, they have included in that, uh, under every point of Tulip, they have hundreds of Bible proof texts. And you can look up the one on perseverance and find verse after verse after verse after verse uh, proving biblically this uh, teaching. It's a good volume to have, uh, especially if you want to talk with people who um, uh, uh, regard themselves as Christians but who aren't reformed and who want to talk about this, the five points of Calvinism. It's a very good help because it's so textual, so scriptural. Um, So you have many of these verses about God preserving those who are his. And we have such a promise here in this text. The Lord promises the remnant of Judah, uh, that they're talking about the time when exile, their exile will occur, but it will come to an end eventually. And God is reminding them that through it all, he has always borne his people. He has always carried them and he will always continue to do so. In other words this is a promise that he will preserve his people and always has always is and always will preserve his people. These words of God bearing and carrying his people these words occur 5 times in these two verses. Once each for what the Lord has done for them in the past bearing and carrying them and then twice it talks about his bearing them in the future and once he's carrying them in the future. This is a very strong emphasis on these words, bearing and carrying. Very strong emphasis for the purpose of reassuring us. Let's look at the language more closely because there are actually three different Hebrew words used here, and each one has a slightly different shade of meaning. The word carry implies lifting something up to carry it. So it's got an emphasis on lifting. Then there are two words that are used that are translated bear. And one of them means carrying a burden with emphasis on the heaviness of that burden. And then the third word that's used has the idea of carrying something in order to carry it away, to transport it. So you've got three different ideas here. Lifting up, carrying something heavy, but moving it somewhere else transporting it somewhere else and this language is then applied in a most comforting way to a parent dealing with an infant and it's a a great, uh, a great picture that's being presented here you have been born the Lord says to his people you have been born by me from birth literally from the belly you have been born by me from the belly and have been carried from the womb. Verse 3. And so the picture that's being presented using those different shades of meaning here, the picture that's being presented is of a, a plump little newborn who's been delivered, and then you know that stereotypical picture of the baby that's born and straight away lifted up for the for the mother to see, perhaps. That little baby, that plump little baby lifted up. And so that's the picture here of what God does with his people. So this is Israel, this plump little burden lifted up by God from the moment of birth and then carried as a mother carries a baby on the hip or a father carries a baby in the arms. And it's not only Israel because this is applied to us as well. This does apply to us. This is you, the plump little baby lifted up and then carried, carried around. So the Lord delivered the Old Testament church, Israel. He brought them into existence. And then he held up this baby of his for all the nations around to see. And in seeing that baby, to see the Lord's work. To see his powerful and his life-creating and his sustaining and preserving hand. Of course, after a time, earthly parents generally stop carrying their children in their arms or on their hips. Don't see it very often with the parents carrying their 21-year-old son on their hip or in their arms. Uh, So there comes a time in earthly families where that kind of thing stops, the children get too big for it. And generally, the parents stop providing for them and protecting them as the children grow more independent. And the time often comes when the tables are turned a little bit and the kids start... Providing for the parents and helping them out. That's a, a common scenario in everyday life. But the point is made here, and again, the, the, uh, the image is such a comforting one. The point is made here that the, ne- the Lord never, ever stops bearing and carrying his children. He says, Even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your graying years. Uh, that's a um, uh, so something of a paraphrase there. Literally it says, even to your grey hairs, God says, I will bear you. Uh, using there especially the word that means transporting. So uh, perhaps we could think here also that uh, just as the Lord bore Israel and transported them, he, he carried his baby through the wilderness. He transported them from one place to another. He carried them to the promised land. And what a a burden they were as he carried them. Not that anything is too burdensome for the Lord, but they were a burden with all their sin, as we are. Burdensome babies, but nevertheless the Lord carries us with ease. This promise is reiterated in the latter half of verse 4 for emphasis. God says, I have done it and I will carry you. And I will bear you and I will deliver you. And this word deliver is also a significant one because uh, there are different words used for the way that God rescues and saves his people. This particular one in Hebrew is very much like the English word. Uh, The English word deliver can have two senses we can mean deliver as in delivering a baby, or we can say deliver as in rescuing someone from a danger delivering from danger so like the English word this word here shows that all this this language of God lifting up and caring is in the context of his deliverance of his people deliverance uh, including not only the idea of bringing them into existence but also the idea of delivering them from danger in other words it is in the context of God's salvation of his people It's another way of saying that God saves and protects his people by bearing and carrying them. Those ideas are all connected here. Preserving us from woe to go, from birth through to old age. And not only for us as individuals as we go through life, but also for his entire church, for Israel, as they go from their beginnings right through to the end of time because Israel is still around not the nation the new Israel which includes elect Jews and Gentiles in Isaiah 53 verse 4 we find the same kind of language used of the suffering servant he bore and he carried that is to say he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows on the cross and that is how he has delivered us and that is part of the way that is involved in our being preserved and carried through life. A couple of other observations I want to make about the language here. First, note how strongly this preserving work is the Lord's work. It is the Lord's grace. It is the Lord's initiative. It is his doing that he uses the word I six times in two verses and by me once. And where the word I is used it is often put very, very emphatically. Um, it's, in, uh, it's kind of a doubling up of the word I. And you could translate it something like this. I, even I, have done this. I, even I, have borne you. I, even I, have carried you. It's all about God. And it is set in contrast here to the idol gods of the nations. Uh, verses 1 and 2, which we read picture the Babylonian the old Babylonian gods Bel and Nebo at the time that the Persian king Cyrus uh, captured the older Babylonian empire and took it over and when he did so uh, the the writer is uh, the Isaiah is pointing out God is pointing out through Isaiah when this happened those old Babylonian gods Bel and Nebo they were not able to do a thing to protect their people In fact, they couldn't even protect their own images of themselves that the Babylonians worshipped. They tried to have their images rescued by putting them on carts and rushing them away from the city, but it didn't work. They were all captured and destroyed by Cyrus. That's how impotent they were. Those gods, those false gods, couldn't even look after their own images of themselves and protect them. Whereas God, by way of contrast, the living God, who allows no image of himself whatsoever, the living God is able to rescue and carry a whole nation. Not rescue and carry it by putting on an ox cart and trying to have it run away from the city, but carrying the whole nation at every point and in every respect in his own arms while ensuring the destruction of all his enemies ultimately. Um, Second uh, observation I'd like to make about this is that it is addressed to a remnant of the house of Israel. And this shows us that the Lord does not withhold tribulation from his people. Yes, he carries and bears us, like a a mother or a father with a little baby. He does that for us, but he doesn't do it in a way that prevents us uh, from going through tribulation. He doesn't withhold that from his people. Rather, he carries his people through that tribulation. Instead of removing the tribulation, he carries us through it. And on the way through that tribulation, there there are defeats for us. There are losses for us. That's why there's a remnant there, because there were losses. And yet, the Lord rescues a remnant. And by doing this, he demonstrates that It is not man preserving himself. Men cannot preserve themselves. It's not man preserving himself. It is the Lord saving a weak and a powerless remnant. And that's the way it is with us. Because the same promises continue into the New Testament. And again, we could come with many verses that say essentially the same thing that we're finding here. Though in the New Testament it becomes more clear That this preservation is coming through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's made more openly clear in the New Testament. As we found in John 10 verses 28 and 29. Where the Lord Jesus talks of um, the eternal life that he gives to the sheep who were given to him by the Father. And then he says they will never perish. That is a promise of perseverance. You will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of the hand either of the Father or the Son. Why? Because God, God the Father and God the Son are greater than all. And we could think of Romans 8 verses 31 to 39 in that. Who can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And the answer is who can separate us? The answer is no one, nothing. Because God himself is our preserver, the one who carries us. Well, that's the promise, the assurance of perseverance given in the pages of Scripture by the triune God. But there are a number of other truths that go into that and lie behind it. And we could spend a lot of time on this, but I can only summarise it briefly. The doctrines behind it, our second and final point. There is behind it, for one thing, the doctrine of God who he is and what he has done. And that comes out in this passage here too. For the promise of perseverance to bring comfort to us, we have to be sure that God is actually able to keep it. And that's where the doctrine of God comes in. Because we do know that he is able to keep it. We know that he is the unchanging and the unchangeable God. Even to your old age, I will be the same. The unchanging and the unchangeable God. He has infinite power that cannot be changed or thwarted. There is no force in the entire universe that can force change upon him or snatch us out of his hand. He is perfectly faithful And therefore, he will never go back on his word. He will never break his word. He will never cease loving his people. He will never cease desiring our salvation. He will never cease bearing and carrying us. There is also the doctrine of election, which is tied up with this, as part of the doctrine of God. And in the Westminster, uh, the second article especially here points to that, talks about that. God has actually chosen those who are his those who are going to persevere he has chosen them in eternity it is an eternal decree it is an order of the infinitely almighty and eternal God he has chosen the elect to remain his and that cannot and it will not be undone if it could be it wouldn't be an eternal decree as he says I will be the same. And so, with his decree. Then there is the doctrine of Christ. And we find this also in these two articles in the Westminster. From eternity, the Father gave sheep, the elect, to his Son. John 10, as we read before. The Son came and bore and carried our sins, our griefs and our sorrows... As Isaiah 53 makes clear, he did that on the cross. And by doing so, he paid the debt of our sins from our sins, the debt that we owe to God, also the, the debt of our failed service and obedience to him. He paid for all of that. He paid the penalty that the law requires for lawbreakers. He appeased or propitiated the wrath of God against that same sin. He atoned for that sin. He covered it over. He expiated that sin. He removed the guilt of it. He reconciled us to God. He made us friends with God. Also his active obedience to all of God's law. That also is counted as ours. So that we are regarded by God as if we had perfectly kept every one of the Ten Commandments at every point. And he currently intercedes for us as the Westminster reminds us. And you see, again, these are things that, by definition, they cannot be undone. And if they could be, then our sin would not really be covered. The penalty would not really be removed or paid or any such thing, and all of those things that the Scripture said would mean nothing. No, these things are are effectual things. They're things that have force and uh, meaning. If they mean anything, then they mean something permanent. And uh, the Westminster alludes to all this by referring to they whom God hath accepted in his beloved. His beloved, the Lord Jesus, who is God, of whom it must also be said, I will be the same. I will be the same, atoning one, expiating one, and so forth, propitiating one, he will be the same. To us. And similarly, with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who will also be the same to God's people. Westminster talks about the work of the Spirit as well in these two articles. The Holy Spirit has effectually called us. That's effectually called us, not tentatively called us in the option or possibility that one day we will be uncalled. No, effectually called. And we could also add to that from Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is our pledge. And if these things could be undone, if the seal could be broken and the pledge could be removed, it would not be much of a seal or much of a pledge at all. The Holy Spirit also progressively sanctifies the believer. And all of this fits in with what is said in Romans 8 verse 32 that if God did not spare his own son then will he not give us all other things that are needful for us for salvation including these works of the Holy Spirit. Because our God is the God who perfects and completes the good work that he begins in his people. Philippians 1 verse 6. He's uh, not like a You know, People often give up if they feel that the work that they're doing and it could be some uh, project on their house or it could be uh, something, a problem that a child is working on for their schooling or some artwork that they do and it doesn't work out quite the way they want and so they give up or it's too much trouble, it's too much effort and they give up but God is not like that. He is the God who always perfects and completes the good work that he begins in his people. So, putting all this together, not only is there no need to see the exit of church members as threatening the doctrine of perseverance, on the contrary, there is every reason to insist that it cannot be threatened. There are triune reasons for saying it cannot be threatened in the person and work of the three persons of the Trinity, and there are textual reasons in this and many, many other verses. Tell us exactly the same thing this promise of perseverance. Perseverance of the saints is grounded in God's preservation of his own character, the fact that he does not change and cannot be changed. It is grounded in the preservation of his own work, which he always brings to completion. And it is grounded in the preservation of his own word which he always keeps. And you see, it is that that makes it such a powerful basis. It's not grounded in us. It does not depend on us, although we are called to cooperate with it. And I'll, Lord willing, say more about that next week. But it's not grounded in us. And therefore, it is a powerful basis, one that cannot be assailed. This basis of perseverance of the saints in God himself. And it is the ground, therefore, of our Christian hope. We would have no certain hope in this life if these things were not true. It is a certain hope because God himself promises to preserve us and to bring us, to carry us through the trials of this life so that we will enter into all that he has promised us in our certain hope. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that if we were left to our own devices, we would not persevere in the faith for a second. We thank you for your work to preserve us and the certainty that we also get from that. But Father, we also confess that in our weakness, we still struggle more at some times than others to stay on the right path and to to keep that certain hope before us. Strengthen us, we pray, and reassure us that you have born and carried us from birth and you will do so throughout our life until we are old and beyond that into the next life. We thank you for this promise and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.